This is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Joel Clark as we continue our way through the Realm of Terror box set. This is the 1990 release of the Ravenloft Realm of Terror rules, uh, written by Bruce Nesmith and Andrea Heyday. Uh, this is what I got started in, and we began this discussion, I think, last month, uh, because Joel has never really read through this book. I think you had some familiarity with Ravenloft well, before? Yeah, I mean, you kind of culturally absorb Ravenloft if you play D&D. You get the idea, like the big strokes. But I'd actually never either played it or knew anything about it. The most that I'd ever seen infamously was that big, um, what is it, isometric view castle of, mm. uh, of like, the big Ravenloft castle. I forget what it's called. But, like, Castle Ravenloft. Like, oh, well, that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Amazingly, I managed to forget that. Uh, but yeah, that's like the the most familiarity I had, and I kind of assumed it was just a big mega dungeon, like uh, like the Caverns of Thracia or something. Nope, it's way different, folks. Uh, we're going through this journey together because I'm basically a total Ravenloft noob. Well, and the map in the Ravenloft module and in the uh, I forget what they called it in the there was a two E module that was released. I think it might have been House of Strahd or something like that. But there was a there was another one that was a redo of that. And I mean the map. The map is very extensive. It's different from the index card that comes in this box set. Um, mm. But but these but again these are all built around the idea of the villain at the heart of these places being a character that moves around and doesn't just sit there waiting for the party to go into the to the dungeon and kill them. You know that is that is kind of the heart of what makes Ravenloft work. Um, so today we're doing uh, chapter chapter was oh nine and ten Chapters. i'm sorry well is it eight nine or is it nine no it's oh, nine it and ten nine and ten because eight is telling the future yeah, there it so, is. so chapter nine spells in ravenloft and chapter 10 magical items in ravenloft now these are chapters that a lot of people might just skim or not even read and then just go back and uh as they need to uh there are some important central rules in here these are really uh, Joel really quite liked these chapters, but these chapters I are did. kind of an appetizer before we get to the main chorus of the Lands of the Core, which is the next chapter. Um, so, I don't know, we want to start with uh, spells in Ravenloft, Joel? And uh... Yeah, I mean, even just talking about, like, generally, the, these are the most kind of cookbook chapters, where, like, I could see someone, like, playing, like, running a Ravenloft game, and then never really reading these in detail, and then just yeah. going back and referencing them as it came up in game, like, oh, they got a, they, they're casting Chill Touch, there's a little asterisk next to it, what does that do? Um, but honestly, even just, like, just reading them straight up like we did, man, these were surprisingly entertaining. Um, it's, it's spells and, okay, so Spells and Ravenloft, good place to start off. Um, so, it doesn't really introduce a lot of new spells although i don't want to do want to earmark that because the ones introduces are cool for a really nifty reason um but it changes a pretty good amount of spells and it sort of changes the principles of how the spells work too um and it brings the entire magic system in line with the the general thesis of ravenloft which is gothic horror and uh, i want to point out that even with the, the very small amount of changes they make that's a that's a, a titanic feat of game yeah. design spells in D and D classically are kind of wacky, uh, very Dr. Strange-ish. And they, especially after third edition, when they kind of were taken to their logical, but absurd conclusion, yeah. they, they've kind of, they're almost their own 
because like you go to the giant playground forums and things like that. They're almost their own culture yeah, of yeah. like breaking games. And so the fact that these authors were able to just kind of concretely and concisely be like, okay, here's the no buttons. Here's what breaks yeah. games. It shows it demonstrates not only that they were knowledgeable about the spells and their tendency to go, you know, kind of sideways and make the game comedic, but also it, it shows their mastery of being able to turn that, that entire massive spell list into yeah. something that with just a few very simple principles will work and not break the game or the feel of the game. So I really yeah. liked that. Yeah, and I should just mention to people, uh, Joel uh, is watching his kids, and so that's why there's there's you might be picking up noise in the background. Um, <laughs> you might be we hearing, won't, yeah, uh, we won't be able to control that necessarily. But what we, is that we, Undertale music they're listening to? They love Undertale recently. I don't. So I have no the, idea what Undertale is. So uh, oh, you poor. It's it's really nifty. I'm gonna have to explain to you the principles of Undertale later. It's another <laughs> another little titan of game design. We'll have to talk about. But uh, but I agree with you. I mean, the core principles. Uh, and again, I was I re I reread this this morning. This isn't a chapter that I, you know, would read <laughs> a lot in my spare time. This is one that um, you know, would often come up, and you'd have to go and you have to look up a spell and that. And yeah. and I remember back when I was running Ravenloft constantly, I knew this chapter by heart because these spells <laughs> came up, and you had to look them up, and you were aware of them. Now I'm definitely more fuzzy. But the the core things that they change are they they control things like summoning. Um, yeah, because summoning's a that, big one. Yeah, that's because well, well, there's a couple of reasons, but one of the big ones is they need to manage Ravenloft is a prison, and they need to manage how easy it is to escape from Ravenloft. And if a summoned creature can enter into Ravenloft and then exit freely, that kind of implies an easy escape, right? So they they yes. put a lid on that. They also limit what you can summon based on the domain that you're in, so that you're not. Able I like to, that a lot. Yeah, because it immediately makes it thematically appropriate. Yes, yes, it, it works. Really, no, no polar bears in Wolf Castle. It, it works in terms of theme. It also works in terms of saying no. Ravenloft is what controls the ground rules here, not your yep. spellbook. Um, that that feeling permeates these chapters, and it's yeah. really it's really rad. And uh, and I think loss of control is an important aspect of horror, and that's one of the reasons why they sort of freely do this, where you might have these tools that would work in another setting, but the Ravenloft setting has its own physics that you have to abide by the, the other key one is detect alignment or detect yes. evil you you know that could have been that was one where they nipped it in the bud because they can see okay players are just going to detect evil on everything and then that that's going to be how they decide if the npc they just met mm -hmm. is a vampire the npc they just met is a serial killer or whatever it is that they need to do so all that you can really detect is law and chaos which works really well because that gives you some information but it doesn't tell you about the morality of the person involved. So, you know, it's useful to know somebody's chaotic, but it doesn't tell you if they'd be willing to kill somebody, right? So, um, or it doesn't tell you if they'd be willing to kill somebody that where it's not self-defense or something necessary. It's, uh, you well, know. And it makes it clear that you can't just use the win button on every every murder mystery you come across. You know, yeah. the detect alignment is such a it's such an easy out for that kind of stuff. And the, again, the authors are aware that that's what you use it for because it's not usually a central thing to D and D. You know, if you see like a, a random dude in a dungeon, and you're like, oh, he's like, oh, help me out of here, and I'll give you gold. He might be on the up and up according to the whatever chart the GM rolled that guy off of. And in, in yeah. that circumstance. Using one of your spell slots to detect good and evil is a significant exchange rather than just using it to blast him or yeah. using it to blast something later on. So that makes sense in normal D&D. It's a different kind of paradigm. Yeah. In this one, the expenditure of a spell slot is less material, but the breaking of that, that – like 
taking the entire arc of that mystery out, that is really significant. And since they realized that they changed the value with the way they were changing the focus, they just altered the spell. It's really clever. Yeah. And uh, the other the other area that gets really affected is scrying and anything to do with any kind of divination. That, that tends to yes. get limited. And resurrection, things well, like that. Uh, yeah, travel... Uh, travel and scrying, I think I want to point out that they don't really change in the material sense that you can still travel and scry with them, but you cannot escape yeah. nor in any way the, the domain that you're in. You're really isolated. Yeah. And that and, and a lot of the necromancy is more powerful in this one and makes you more evil. Yeah. Um, well, necromancy has a sort of enhanced effect in Ravenloft, which I think is cool. And it usually it requires cool. a powers check as well. Well, um, and here's what's great about the powers check, and this struck me whenever I actually when one of the very first ones, the uh, the cold touch, which is like way way deadlier because it's like double damage in this one, yeah. but it requires a powers check. A lot of powers are altered that way. Yeah. And what I found fascinating about that was that it added a moral dimension to your powers. It, yes. Because suddenly yes. you had to choose: Am I actually going to do something evil? Yeah for this new power that i have well or ta the... tap into evil magic is is, is especially is essentially what you're doing here and this is one where in most settings necromancy can kind of be good or evil like it's it's shady yeah it's dark but it could be good or evil here it's like no 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 necromancy is by its very nature connected with evil doing there, there's yeah there's... it's it has a morality now it's yeah. fantastic and, and what happens is if you look... So they give a list of altered spells. They give the priest spells and then the wizard spells. And, and certain spells have an asterisk next to them. And those are the spells that are uh, requiring powers checks. So one, mm. two, three, four, five, six. So there's seven altered priest spells that require powers checks. And quite a few more magic uh, that from the wizard list that requires powers checks. Oh, and one, we're going to get into the wizard five, list, six, too, seven, because eight, the way they altered some of these is 15. amazing. There's 15 that require powers checks. And so it would be Chill Touch, Spectral Hand, Feign Death, Vampiric Touch, Contagion, Enervation. Enervation has a pretty cool effect. Animate yeah. Dead, Magic Magic Jar is quite interesting in this one. Um, summon Shadow... Death Spell, Reincarnation, Control Undead, Finger of Death, Energy Drain, and Gate. So, you know, um, you know, the the, the I, I think that uh, it's like you're saying they they add that that moral dimension, um, but also well, they do some. Oh, okay, go ahead. go ahead, go ahead. No, I was gonna no, say, no, but no, but also like you were saying too, it enhances necromancy. So there's, mm -hmm. it's not clear why the dark powers are mysterious so it's not they clear are. why it's significant that it's responding what what that, that this is sort of being keyed as evil but it sort of suggests that maybe i mean the dark powers might not necessarily be a force of good they could themselves be you know something approximating satan say for mm. uh uh um for the the realms of D and D. Do you know what I mean? It, 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 there, there's, there's very much a, I don't know, purgatory or a hell like quality to Ravenloft. And so, um, I like that they always keep that ambiguous, even though there is this clear moral dimension going on. Like there's a, there's a greater moral, uh, geometry here. Right. Uh, yes. but, but it's very unclear exactly what you're dealing with in Ravenloft. Um, I'm sorry, that you were going to say something, so I wanted to... 
Oh man! Well, here's the thing. The thing I'm gonna say, I'm not gonna be able to stop saying uh, once we get into it. So I'm actually gonna save it off until a little bit later because I'm not gonna forget it. This burned in my mind the entire okay. time. But I'm gonna make certain that our audience is on the hook for a little while for it. So get get ready for that, people. But uh, what I want to say first about because you're talking about the the moral geometry of this, there are two things that got hammered into my mind by these chapters. Number one, even though D and D characters can become very powerful. Um, Ravenloft alters the way their powers work so that they go from being kind of like Billy Badass mm -hmm. uh, in charge of how the setting looks to being intrepid still, but overwhelmed. Like they're intrepid, but outmatched. Mm. Like Ravenloft is always a step ahead of you as a setting. You really cannot, no matter how powerful your spells are, if you, it doesn't matter if you have Wish, doesn't matter if you have Gate, doesn't matter. Ravenloft is a step ahead of you. And it keeps you in that position. It completely checkmates your ability to make a mockery of the setting. I think that's very important. Yeah. Because uh, it means there's never a thematic point, no matter where your character is in their career, that they escaped the gravity of the setting. That's really good. And it's hard to do in D&D because characters yeah, become gods in the setting. And, it, and uh, it does it without totally nerfing them, which is interesting. No, nope. Yeah. I, it just it can it nerfs some things. Like, and one of my favorite ones, uh, what was it? It was one of the teleport spells. Uh, it's just straight up. The the sex is incredibly clear. It's like this does not work here. What was it? What was it? I gotta look it up now. Uh, astral spell. Mind oh blood. yeah, yeah. In Ravenloft, the spell does nothing. The end. Period. Dot. <laughs> just get another spell, Joker. Yeah. I love that. Usually, I I despise whenever something is like really a little too clear like that. Mm -hmm. But sometimes, whenever there's thoughtfulness put into the bluntness of that boundary. It is truly beautiful. What page and, is that one on, by the way? Oh, uh, what was it? 59? I just looked it up. <laughs> Give me a second. We're all flipping through. They're but not. Oh, it's, it's on 50. Yeah, they're not in alphabetical order. They're in order by level, which is a little bit confusing. But well, it's, it's, it's alpha it, by level. But yeah, yeah it's, it's not yeah, pure so alphabet. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Rayleigh's spell does nothing. I just wanted to see it for myself. Um, Isn't that beautiful? It's 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 direct. And it like one. The ones it. that I liked were like like Magic Jar I loved because you read that and you're like, oh, I can see that being the background of somebody who used that spell and is now okay. the... That, that was it. That was the triggering phrase, Brendan. Hmm. Okay, so Magic Jar is a good example and a few spells do this, right? Where they make their own adventure. Yes. They are a mystery unto themselves. We gotta talk about it. Hmm. All, every spell they alter significantly doesn't just nerf it. Doesn't just have a big, like his third edition would have been this categorical nerfing. You can't do this. You can't do that. You must do this. No, 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 no. These guys program in a story or a background story to every significantly yeah. altered spell. So, Magic Jar is among them and very brilliant. Yeah, let me. What do you, um, what do you, what do you got there? You got a new book now. What is this? I, one? I have. Okay, so I got the second edition player's handbook revised. I, I prefer the 1989 second edition handbook, but this is the one they have on drive through and i wanted to get a fresh one because i'm oh, thinking of that. i'm thinking of running now this one look at the layout is terrible i've never liked the layout of this book you can the, the orange and everything just really I, yeah. I always i that was the first set of D, &D manuals i ever clapped eyes on uh before oh, okay. i got to see third edition it was the second edition stuff um and i actually liked it i thought it, i thought it had a nifty uh like iconic layout okay and, it's only I, been recently I've been really digging into the older stuff. Older yeah, the, than second. The older one for me was mine, so maybe that's why. But I just um, mm. also I'm noticing that their index does not seem to be working. That's interesting. <laughs> oh no. Um, 
Oh, oh no, no. I, I read the wrong page. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. And this is going to take us a little while, but I want to do it this way because this is what always happens in these discussions. People talk about game mechanics and things that mm. exist, and they don't explain what they are, and they don't. Um, they just assume you know. And I think Magic Jar is one of these spells that people don't necessarily know automatically what it does. And it's a complicated It's a one. weird one. Yeah, so yeah, I, I want, spell. with your permission, the right to read the entire second edition spell entry and then we can read the ravenloft entry um, we should do that but before yeah. we do that we need to make sure that we are telling everyone that the opportunity to do this in these wonderful printed out hardbacks we have, or no softbacks we have uh this is thanks to our drive to rpg uh so these things are wonderfully available from them we're not getting any money from them but i would like to point out that they're actually a pretty great resource sometimes so thanks drive through rpg continue brendan um so it's a magic jar range 10 yards per level Duration is special. There's a lot of spells that have special as an entry, by the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, area of effect, one creature. Components, VSM. So what verbal, somatic, and material. Um, mm -hmm. Casting time, one round. Saving throw, special. The magic jar spell enables the caster to shift his life force into a special receptacle, a gem or large crystal. From there, the caster can force an exchange of life forces between the receptacle and another creature thus enabling the wizard to take over and control the body of another creature while the life force of the host is confined in the receptacle. The special life force receptacle must be within spell range of the wizard's body at the time of spell casting. The wizard's life force shifts into the receptacle in the round in which the casting is completed, allowing no other actions. As you probably already know just from the first paragraph, this is the kind of spell that when you cast it, you got to keep reading and rereading these paragraphs the first few <laughs> times it comes up. So while in the magic jar, the caster can sense and attack any life force within a 10-foot per level radius on the same plane. However, the exact creature types and relative physical positions cannot be determined. In a group of life forces, the caster can sense a difference of four or even more levels slash hit dice and can determine whether a life force is positive or negative energy. For example, if two 10th level fighters are attacking a hill giant and four ogres, the caster could determine that there are three stronger and four weaker life forces within range. All with positive life energy, the caster could try to take over other stronger or weaker creatures, but he has no control over exactly which creature is attacked. An attempt to take over a host body requires a full round. It is blocked by a protection from evil spell or similar ward. If it is successful only if the subject fails a save or sorry, it is successful only if the subject fails a saving throw versus spell with a special modifier. See the following. The saving throw is modified by subtracting the combined intelligence and wisdom scores of the target from those of the wizard, intelligence and hit dice in non human or non humanoid creatures. This modifier is added to or subtracted from the die roll. And then it gives the list of the modifiers. And then it says a negative score indicates that the wizard has a lower total than the target, thus the host has a saving throw bonus. Failure to take over the host leaves the wizard life force in the magic jar. If successful, the caster's life force occupies the host's body and the host life force is confined to the magic jar receptacle. The caster can call upon the rudimentary, uh, sorry, rudimentary or instinctive knowledge of the subject creature, but not upon its real or acquired knowledge. The wizard does not automatically know the language or spells of the creature. The caster retains his own attack rolls, class knowledge, and training, and any adjustment due to his intelligence or wisdom. If the host body is human or humanoid, and the necessary spell components are available, the wizard can even use his memorized spells. The host body remains its own hit points, uh, retains its own hit points and physical abilities and properties. The DM decides if any additional modifications are necessary. For example, perhaps clumsiness or inefficiency occurs if the caster must be. Uh, 
must become used to the new form. The alignment of the host or the receptacle is that of the occupying life force. The caster can shift freely from the host to the receptacle if within 10 feet per level range. Uh, each attempt to shift requires one round. The spell ends when the wizard shifts from the jar to his own body. A successful dispel magic cast on the host can drive the caster of the magic jar spell back into the receptacle and prevent him from making any attacks for 1d4 rounds plus one round per level of the caster of the dispel. The base success chance is 50% plus or minus 5% per level difference between the casters. A successful dispel magic cast against the receptacle forces the occupant back into his own body. If the wizard who cast the magic jar is forced back into his own body, the spell ends. If the host body is slain, the caster returns to the receptacle. If within range, and if the life force, uh, and the life force of the host departs, i.e., it is dead. If the host is slain beyond the range of the spell, uh, both the host and the caster die. Uh, any life force with nowhere to go is treated as slain unless recalled by a raised dead resurrection or similar spell. If the body of the caster is slain, his life his life force survives if it is in either the receptacle or the host. If the receptacle is destroyed while the caster's life force occupies it, the caster is irrevocably slain. Now, this is long. That is almost a full... That's a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's a double column. And I think the Ravenloft one is nearly as long. It's not quite as long, but it's close. Um, you want me to read that one? Yeah, because my throat is now a little bit dry. So Well, also, it's, it's a nice, like, you know, back and forth that way. Okay, so where, where are we going? Here? So, so it's on page 48, Magic Jar, fifth level. All right. So here are the changes to Magic Jar whenever you take it into the, the realm of shadows, as it is. This spell undergoes a small but deadly change in Ravenloft. If the host's body is slain, the caster does not necessarily return to the Magic Jar. The caster must make a successful saving throw versus death or be bound to the host's corpse. If the roll succeeds, the spell works normally. If it fails, the wizard becomes an undead monster occupying the host's body, which the DM controls completely. That is the sweet stuff of this spell. That's that, good. That's that is yummy. the background adventure that that you want to <laughs> well, run. No, there's even more background yeah. adventure. Oh, yeah. Okay, keep going. Keep out. going. Keep going. Specifically, the following occurs when the caster becomes undead. And by the way, they, they allude to this in earlier chapters, too, where undead have altered rules. So, continuing. The corpse of the host lies in peaceful death for a full day. For a full day. <laughs> then if the corpse is still relatively whole, it is animated with the caster's life force. I like that they knew that they wouldn't necessarily be relatively <laughs> whole, by the way. Thank you, people who run d and I also like that they take the time to define it in a moment, what relatively whole yes. means. So oh, go yeah, on, it, go right on. here. If it is not relatively whole, the wizard dies. Relatively whole, in quotation marks, usually means the head and torso <laughs> are intact. Usually means yeah. the head and torso are intact. It's defined, but it gives you plenty of wiggle room as a GM. Mm -hmm. to... So many horrors have, 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 by necessity, shambled out of the vagary of that passage. Yeah. The caster, when undead, retains the powers he had in life, excluding uh, physical abilities. He assumes the physical abilities of the host's body. He does not retain powers antithetical to an undead state, healing touch, plant growth, or protection from evil, for example. The DM's best judgment applies here. I also like that they consistently throw it back on the DM's judgment, yeah. by the way. Yeah. That's really it's a good. Ruling, it's a ruling over rules mentality that is necessary for this kind of setting. It, it's a robust kind of rules framework that really helps if you have a referee. 
Um, in addition, the caster receives the usual powers of an undead creature. He is immune to sleep, charm, and other mind control spells, and he never needs sleep, food, drink, or even air. I like that they, they called that out specifically. He is immune to cold-based damage. Depending on the hit dice of the host body, he may receive other powers as well. Consult the table below. Uh, four or less, no additional powers, but five to seven gives you energy drain touch. Jesus. Yeah. Eight to 11 is regenerate one hit point each round. Again, oh my God. And the 11 plus is a 40 foot fear aura. Mmm, tasty. The special powers above are cumulative. Hence, a 12 hit die monster would enjoy all three powers. The aura of fear automatically affects creatures with less than four hit dice. Those with four to six hit dice can make a saving throw. The caster's original body also becomes an undead creature. So, and it, yes. again, it's making even more undead from how much this spell has effed you over. Uh, this creature is weaker than the one created from the host body. It has only half as many hit dice as the caster had levels in life. And what I want to say about that that's really cool is because it's the caster's body that is now like the undead servant, that creates just a, that's just a really interesting adventure idea. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? And nothing um, to point out with these changes is characters are almost never aware yeah. that the spells are altered or how they are altered yeah. until they experiment and, with them. And that's because, and, and the, the reason why this is interesting is because the player characters might know the NPC that cast the spell and became undead. And mm -hmm. so their first interaction might be with the servant undead creature. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that's the part that I think is. Oh yeah, super there's cool. so many ways you can yeah. do this soul shell game. Mm -hmm. You know, because the original magic jar is really just about being like it's like baby's first phylactery. Yeah. It's body hopping. You know, I'll I'll get this body. It's the Captain yeah. Ginyu power. Uh, but this makes it even more bizarre because in addition to the body hopping, there's corpses that are wandering around and doing stuff. So oh, I love it. Okay, anyway, that could be up to a maximum of ten hit dice. Uh, going back to it. The Turning Undead table in the player's handbook lists monster types by hit dice. And here, here I like this, by the way. Uh, for example, a 13th level wizard would become a 6-hit die monster, according to the table. A 6-hit die undead monster is a wraith. So and I like this, this mm. concise bit of game design because you only have to look at that one table. Be like, okay, half the hit dice, round it up. Yeah. I guess it's rounded down. And then look and see what you can turn choose from that list you're that kind of undead yeah that's really easy plug and play game design that still feels thematic and cool uh it's it's mm, it's that's a plus choice game design in my uh estimation the dm can choose a different undead creature of the same hit die if desired delicious the magic jar spell undergoes another important change the life force of the host contained in the magic jar, by the way this is my favorite part does not depart when the caster's own life force is bound to the host's body Instead, the host life force becomes trapped in the jar, held there by the powers of Ravenloft itself. Yeah. The powers of this trapped life force are unknown, but it is said the force may fester and grow within yes. its prison, attaining powers that allow it to reach out from the jar and perhaps eventually escape. When the magic jar is destroyed, the life force within it is destroyed so, too. So in just this one spell, you have this amazing <laughs> body swap story an evil monster, another less evil monster, and a, a haunted place yeah. with an, an inexplicable haunting. One spell goes awry and you have all that. What I... I love it. And and, and the great thing, too, is it, it, this, to me, just as somebody who writes games and stuff, when I look at entries that I've written, I, I know when I was on fire and when I was not on fire, when I was struggling. Yeah. This was a oh, designer yeah. on fire. I don't know if it was Bruce Nesmith or Andrea Hayde or Whoever both of them, or both of them were doing it. 
but you could tell they were just like, "Ooh, I I know exactly how this spell is going to be changed." And they're just they could have probably gone on for another four pages if they really wanted to with this. Oh time. yeah, do you know what I mean? Like I I just have a feeling that 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 when they would run the game and the spell came up, or when they used it as an adventure background material, they would have just had endless ideas for how it could have gone in different directions. So. It- it's a cool spell in the first place. It, it's a complex spell. Yeah. And it's a spell that kind of writes its own story. And this writes a thousand stories. This is dripping so, with potential. And yeah. it's in the cookbook chapter. It's and, in the consultus when they cast a spell chapter. Yeah. yeah, and so this is the spells in Ravenloft chapter is just, these are the spells that are changed. Here are some new spells. Um, most entries are not that long. Most are like, uh, I'll just read one more. Teleport without error, seventh level. This spell works normally, except that it cannot transport the character out of Ravenloft or out of a domain whose borders have been magically sealed. Keep in mind that some areas of Ravenloft change so that the teleporter might not be as familiar with the place as he believes. So, oh my god, I love that. Yeah. I love that last line. Yeah, they, they always kind of throw in a little thing like that. But that's only, you know, a paragraph. Some of them aren't even that. Some are just a sentence or two. Uh, but, the, but the Magic Jar spell got special treatment. Um, and it definitely deserved the special treatment. Um there's mm-hmm. also we should, we should probably move on to new spells because we we're uh, we got to get to magic <laughs> items also. It. So yeah, yeah. Uh, so there are three new spells in the book also. There's Fane Undead, there's Divine Curse, and there's Ancient Curse. Now, um, and it's one necromancy and two abjurations. Uh, how did you feel about those new spells? Did they leap out at you, or did they just seem kind of like ah filler new spells? No, no, they were great. I mean, like I, I like that there's a somewhat more codified way of doing curses. I think yeah. that that scans for Ravenloft, and it's a really good uh, path to. And I like that there's an ambiguous moral dimension to it, where it's kind of like up to the intent of the caster whether or not it's evil in the circumstance. Yeah. Because you you seem like you can lay down righteous vengeance on people with this, or you could be an evil sob. And just do it out of spite, and they both pull you in a different moral direction. Yeah. Though they do That's lean cool. towards the recipient being an evil person. Um, they do, sure. uh, uh, which is fascinating. Uh, I mean, and they're priest spells, so yeah. it makes sense that you could, like, divine sanction carries moral weight here. So that's neat. Um, Thane on Death is one of the cruelest spells that I can imagine. Because <laughs> um, you can really screw somebody over with that spell. Um, and it's a fourth level priest spell and a fifth level wizard spell. Wait, how would you screw somebody over? It's a willing target. Is it willing? Oh, oh, never mind. For some reason, I thought that they couldn't. I guess I guess you could trick them, right? You could trick them. So, like... Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, if you tricked somebody, this is a cruel trick. Yeah. I, I guess... Okay, here's the question. When it says willing, does it matter if they know what the outcome of the... Like, if they... Is it only that they just agree to let you touch them, and if you do, the effect takes hold? Or do they have to actually be on board with the effect of the spell for the willingness to actually... Matter, oh yeah. man i i would say it sort of depends on because it's a sort of a knob that i've been discovering slowly in ravenloft between horror and morality yeah like those are the two poles and on the one thing if you don't have any moral agency you are more horrified because something yeah. is happening to you and if on the other hand if there's more moral agency then there can be less horror because you're kind of choosing your own poison so those are the two sort of knobs that you have to, to fiddle with and, and do the trade-off between uh, so in this one, if it's more of a horror style campaign and the players are experiencing the horror, it, it should be you could get duped into it. Yeah. That would be like well, turning it all the way up to horror. Well, one if it's way... a more moral thing, uh, it would be it would be different. You know, like you would yeah. have to do this to yourself. Well, one way it could be used is you could have a villain using it to frighten people to make him seem more powerful for like, though it's a high level spell. So 
You know, well, it's fourth it, level, which is pretty powerful. That's powerful. Uh, that's a powerful spell. Um, but there's still, again, because you're in Ravenloft, the the distinction between I am an evil wizard and I am an everlasting undead yeah. evil wizard, yeah. that's a whole new category of horror. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're interesting spells. There's only three. I think it's good that you can go crazy. I think when they go crazy, it gets annoying. These three, all three of them make sense. I, I think the curse is more than Fane on Death, but still, you know, uh, and I'm sure plenty of people have a variety of uses for Fane on Death. Um, uh, so let's get to magic items because that's important. Uh, th there are some general guidelines that are significant here, I think. Yes. Um, so one of the ones that's not even bullet pointed but is important is uh, magic items are not that common in Ravenloft. You know. Oh yeah. It, 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 it says it says two things that are important, and and also one of those things is going to be controversial uh, if you ever talk to people online about Ravenloft. Um, there aren't that many magic items, and there also aren't that many people in Ravenloft. It's a very low population setting, almost unrealistically low, and that's significant and important. Um, but the reason for there not being that many magic items is the, the resources for making them aren't there. The history of the setting is actually not that long, so it's not like you have these thousand-year stretches of time for all this stuff to get made, and it's also just not... It's, it's not this isn't a high magic setting, so it's not the kind of place where people are constantly making magic items. Uh, and it's strange that it's both low magic and low population, and it, that doesn't make sense until you really realize that Ravenloft is a prison where people go yeah. to be in prison. It's a, this isn't you're not supposed to have a realistic agrarian world here. Yeah, no, know? and that's the debates people have online: is well, you should have this amount of population for this amount of stuff and this tech level, but this is like a Twilight Zone place. It's not. It's yes. not a place where logic. Oh, God, that's Holes. like the perfect description. Yeah. It's a Twilight Zone place. Yeah, it's a Twilight Zone place. This is a place where, yeah, things don't always make sense um, because it's it's a it's a supernatural prison that exists in, like, the border of the ethereal plane and is controlled by these dark powers that are totally mysterious. Um, so uh, one of the points is magical items cannot summon normal animals who do not dwell in the domain at hand. This is pretty important that, you, that, that everything, kind of, like we said with spells, things kind of have to key to the domain itself. <laughs> domain, divination is weaker here. Um, and the rule of not being able to, you know, identify good and evil applies. Um, there is one p potential work around that, which is artifacts. Artifacts can sometimes get around oh, yeah. the rules. But, but artifacts, um, they should feel really significant in the game. And anytime they show up in a game and they don't, that's a failure uh, on the part of the GM to make them feel significant. Whenever you can really break some of these bulleted rules in Ravenloft, that feels like a, the finger of God came down and touched you. Yeah. And so uh, the other one that's not really bullet pointed is planet planner travel is never is is rarely allowed. And so you know, obviously that applies to magic items. It does say some domains do allow a particular device to bridge between planes, but this is all very sort of specific to things mm. um uh items that are evil require powers checks and some evil items that are necromantic especially work better in ravenloft um and so just to give people here's a good example i think of a, um of a magic item change i like uh mm -hmm. the ring of genie summoning the oh, genie I was about appears to throw that one out yeah. i love this one the genie appears and uh, serves the wearer once after that service the genie tries to return to its own plane and cannot this is a violation of the Pact of the Ring. The genie is freed. 
if its former master was kind and reasonable, the 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 genie leaves to find its own exit from the demiplane. If the former master was cruel and harsh, the genie attacks him. Now, obviously, that's simplified. I think you have a lot more wiggle room. It's it's saying the specifics of how the genie was treated is going to affect how the genie reacts. Mm. And so that could result in the genie attacking you. It could result in the genie wanting to torture you or worse. Yeah, you know? and I think that as a GM, when I see a passage like that, when it's that <laughs> binary, I always interpret that along like a more pragmatic spectrum. Yeah. I'm always like, well, okay, yes. The the ultimate pull is it will launch into a frenzied attack or it will you know kindly leave you alone. But there's this universe of a neglected middle there, right? So that's yeah. our job as a GM to look into that and be like, well, what are the specifics here? Yeah, that's uh, and um and there's a lot of items that do that kind of a thing. Oh yeah, um, I any, really love that one. Were there any uh, other items see. that you wanted to discuss or uh, any concepts that have, that you thought were cool? Yeah, I'm trying to think here. There was one more in these that I really liked. Which one was it? Because uh, that was my favorite one. <laughs> I really loved that. Let's see. It's not a flask of curses. Gem of Seeing is pretty cool. Helmet Telepathy. Mirror of Life Trapping. There was one where... Let me see. I'm trying to think here. Well, the Horn of Valhalla has a big page count, but it boils down to you actually are summoning people from their afterlife (laughs) and they get trapped here. And if you fuck that up enough, Odin shows up and he's like, "Okay, no, I'm taking my warriors back and the horn. No more for you. Uh, That's fun. Let me see. What was the other one? Oh, Sphere of Annihilation was the other one that caught my mind because uh, it, it specifically, yeah, you capture the attention of the Ravenloft powers when you use that. Like, they're actually like, oh, really? Look what, let's get this shiny new toy you brought us. Mm. Uh, so I thought that was really neat. Um, yeah. Let me see. Was there any other one here that I like? I guess not. I thought there was another one in this that I was like, well, ooh, that's nifty. Intelligent that's weapons are way more powerful in Ravenloft. That's an interesting Well, the evil ones are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. Evil. E- the ego of an evil intelligent weapon rises five points. That's pretty cool. I like that idea. Um, I like that artifacts get some exceptions here. Um, mm-hmm. I like this the frequency of treasure and magic section, which we already talked about. Uh, what about the new magic items? Um, the new ones, okay, the new ones have a lot of weight, right? Um, the apparatus is kind <laughs> of like the artifact version yeah. of uh, of the magic jar spell work and switch people's souls. Yeah. It can also split you into good and evil halves. Yeah. And the fun thing is, infallibly, when it splits somebody into an evil half, the evil half gets their own domain immediately. Yeah. It's like, here you go. You're evil enough. The, you are raw evil. My favorite. Well, can you guess what my favorite magic item on this list was? Let me, let me see. Let me, let me look through here. There's not that many, um, so it should be pretty easy. Okay, I think, well, if we're talking about my favorite one, and I, th- this would be a high contender for yours, it would be the Cat of Felkovic. I like that one. That's my second favorite. I, that's, that's my, my favorite one. Okay, that uh, one is by, very good. Because one... it feels like an Edgar Allan Poe story, right? The cat comes to life and eat one, eats once a day, and if it can't find something as a cat, it upgrades to lynx. And if it can't yep. go lynx, it goes tiger. <laughs> and then, like, the ultimate form is, like, this gigantic, what is it, a, a smilodon? It's a saber-toothed yeah. tiger, basically. And it's, it, oh, that rules. And I love that when it captures something, if you turn it back into a statue before it's done eating, the, it turns that into a statue, too. Yeah. Keep, and then later on, it might be that it's changed. Keep this device in mind when we're reading through the next section, by the way. Um, okay. My favorite one actually is Amulet of the Beast. Um, okay, that's the I one, I, and, and the reason why is I know I use that more than any other magic item in this list. Uh, I well, use that 
constantly. There's two of them. Yes, which that's I why love. it's so great. So, yeah, why don't you explain what they are? Oh, okay, so there's the Amulet of the Beast is actually two different amulets. One of them prevents a lycanthrope from turning into a werewolf that just keeps him in a, as a person, yeah. and it's in no way cursed. So you can use it in two ways. You can either use that to ward off your own curse, or if you are a lycanthrope, you can use it to appear as a normal person. Yeah. So that's clever. Uh, the other one, though, is cursed, and it makes you turn into a lycanthrope. Yes, yes. <laughs> I love it. The, 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 there's so much you can do. I mean, this is the ultimate. And, and, and again, you have to be even-handed in how you do it. You have to be careful. But Ravenloft is the ultimate setting for kind of messing with the players a little bit you have to be you you have to be willing to do nefarious things to the players from time to time because the setting is cruel and mean and it does that and the amulet of the beast can be done two ways with that and i mean obviously a player who unknowingly wears an ivory amulet of the beast uh could become a lycanthrope right there's that Oops. but the other one that's i think interesting is the the one that restrains lycanthropy because you could have a person who maybe doesn't even know that they're a lycanthrope that's wearing one of those. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then it comes off at some point in the campaign and it's a disaster. And that could be an NPC even. It doesn't even have to be a PC. But it's just, you know, or they yeah. could meet somebody who's a lycanthrope who's a great person and they don't realize that this per this person, maybe maybe they're even a lycanthrope hunter or something. You don't know, but, you know, they... Here, God, the fact that they made both the amulet and its opposite share the same name makes me so goddamn delighted. I have to straight up malice glee out of that because you meet someone who is a werewolf and doesn't know it and they have the Amulet of the Beast <clears throat> and like someone else in your party maybe gets an amulet called the Amulet of the Beast, which looks almost identical aside from the coloration. You can even paint the damn thing so it looks identical. And there are werewolf attacks, right? And you're like, oh no, we've got to get the Amulet of the Beast from that one guy. It's turning him into a werewolf. You take it off. The werewolf attacks double. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, wait, what? <laughs> It's a really interesting item. The other one that I like, too, is the Sword of Auric um, on page 58. That was a fun one. I like that they specify that it was made by Drow for Drow, and if you're not Drow, it, it turns you into a freaky ogre monster. It's What's cool about this one is the same reason Magic Jar was cool, It's it's a and it's an adventure. Like, I can just say, oh, I'm going to drop the Sword of Auric into the game, and I know it's going to be a murder mystery about this ogre guy that has the Sword of Auric. Um, so I, I think that's uh, a really, I don't know. I, I like that one. Um, also, my favorite picture is on this page, on page fifty-nine. This is one of my favorite pictures in the book. Um, oh my god! That if you open this, these chapters for nothing else but this beautiful piece of art, I don't think your time yeah. is wasted. I I, I don't I, know what it's called when there's this sort of, it's almost like a bubbly, languid kind of construction to this. Like it's not like realistic, right? It, it's it looks... it's it's very stylized. It's hyper realistic. I would say it's dreamscape. Esque. Yeah, it's it's very um, dreamscape. And, and what I like about it is the there's this ruined stairway in the background that leads up to like a gateway entrance, but it goes into nothing because it's all <laughs> the rest of the building is gone. So you don't know if it was a tower or what, but it's all well, bathed in boot. Well, it could be a magic gateway, or it could just be a um. It could know, just be a fall to your yeah, doom. And yeah. I I love the but, fact that there is a leap of faith just to kind of hanging out in the background of this painting off center and 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 also it's bathed in moonlight so it does kind of suggest even though the moon is behind it it does suggest that the um uh the, the magic gate potential that you're talking about but there's a mysterious figure in the front who does not look totally harmless 
So, you know, it's it's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, and it's not clear. that The image of that woman in this is gorgeous because it's not clear if we're seeing something that is dangerous or something that is, uh, like, victimized or something look, that is completely lateral to those two assumptions. Look, look at her um, right hand and tell me if that doesn't seem a little off to you. Yeah, it looks like there's some kind of, like, mystic, like, spell aura attached to it. But it's not clear. Is that a big rock? Oh, I'm sorry. No, her right hand. Her right hand. I apologize. Her right hand. Her right hand or her left hand? Her right hand. I got the... So our... For a left from our perspective. Our our left, yes. Our left. Yeah, and again, the left where it's... In that whole, like, half of her is, like, shrouded in darkness. And there's something vaguely sinister suggested by the silhouette, isn't there? Like, it's not clear if we're seeing like the one piece of her fabric that in her entire body that's actually being caught by the wind or if there's something nefarious going on there like there's some kind of transformation that's only vaguely hidden yes. outlined by the moonlight a transformation Beautiful. or even another creature perhaps or what yeah. you don't know it's it's very unclear but the woman does not look unafraid um and she has her eyes fixated on something you know what i mean like there's well, and something... her eyes have this unnatural glint to them yeah. Like they're catching the moonlight like a cat's eyes. There's so much that's uncanny about this image. Yeah. It's really gorgeous. I, the art gets really good in the Von Richten books because then you really start to see Fabian explore the world. Do you know what I mean? Oh, it's, it's really it's really interesting. Um, you know what was cool too is I forgot about Iraq. Now, I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but it's the next chapter. It's the first mm-hmm. domain that's described in, domain, in the domains uh, in detail sections in Land of the Core. And uh, it's a uh, drow domain. Um, and I completely forgot about that one. I think I think it disappears during the current grand conjunction or it gets moved. Um, but, Lame. But uh, well, the grand conjunction happens in the red box set, um, and so that that changes the demi plane. And then there's another change, I believe, before Domains of Dread. I think Domains of Dread also introduces some changes. Um, and and then if you even go further into like the three E stuff, it gets changed even more. So the it's landscape. weird that this it's strange to me that Ravenloft pioneered so much of the good of the world of darkness and also so much of the bad in the whole like ever changing meta plot BS. Oh, well, I mean, the meta plot, the meta plot was it was less annoying, I think, in Ravenloft than in Vampire because Vampire was really heavily fueled by the meta plot there. I mean, but but it was there. There was a series of adventures uh, about a, a prophecy and I think I think it was like five or six modules that were all linked, and the, each of those modules were like one of the lines from the prophecy becoming true. And by the end of it, they all become true, and then you have the grand conjunction. That, that at idea. least is clever. Yeah. Um, but but it is meta plot, and it is, and and also I don't know I I I I'm I've always been torn on it. I liked the red box set when it came out. At the same time, I didn't like them moving Markovia out of the core i didn't like gehenna being taken out and i i don't even think i liked blutzbar being taken out or um you know any you know the uh the nomad the nightmare lands um yeah and this is a point that gets brought up a lot that here we are what a lifetime after the creation of the black box right and there's nothing at all in the universe keeping us from running it exactly as it's written in here like it really, the old stuff really does not go away, and that's never yeah. more true than nowadays. When you can get again, we, we're both reading these 
out of like print on demand copies. Yeah. Like this is a physical thing we both have. We well, and I have, I, I do have the black box set. I just, one of the reasons I got the POD version to do for this segment is I didn't want to ruin the, the books that I have of Ravenloft because I, because yes. they're like $500 now and stuff. So I was it's like, really hard to get yeah. the original. Ones. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, I'm going to leave those in the box and I'll just use this POD version for, for reading yeah. through this and possibly running it. That was something I, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely thinking we should do a, a short campaign, probably mm. using module material so you can see what it's actually like to, uh, to th what the material at the time was like for adventures, not just what Brendan would have run or what I would run. <laughs> um, I'd be interested to see what you would have ran back in the day. I, I, mean, I, could, I always I, surprise myself I, when I go back. I would, I would have run monster hunts mostly. That was sort of more my general approach. Um, <laughs> I like that you took that and made an entire career out of it eventually with Strange Tales. Of well, Sunlight. everything everything I do now is very heavily inspired by the Ravenloft. That's why this is the one line I get so worked up about. Um, well, I mean, and you can see why. I really, I, and, and I've not gotten super into the new stuff. So we may we may have to do a, a dissection and autopsy on that after we're done with this one. But like, I feel like even from what I've just absorbed from like the, the fallout of the larger conversation about the new Ravenloft stuff, that the authors would have been greatly served by reading the original material in this box. Uh, I mean, just just the fact that the phrase intrepid but overwhelmed is such a, a concise and concrete like philosophy of design of this. It's never stated outright, but it's clear as you read the text that mm -hmm. that is what the characters are. That's not present in the new one, apparently. Apparently in the new one, you're just as powerful as you are in 5th mm -hmm. edition, and it ruins the broth. I don't I don't know how much changes they made. What I can tell you is when I've looked at the marketing, when I've looked at the excerpts, some things I think look good. Like I like that they have a whopping vampire. I like that um that is the cool. maps look good. Full disclosure, the mapper is somebody that I've worked with in the past, but the maps look beautiful. No way, uh, that yeah, rocks. Yeah, the the maps look beautiful. More work. That's always great to see. Um, you know, a lot of the individual creative choices look cool, but some of the some of the things that just as an old fan for me don't make it work are things that you're alluding to some of the things that seem to be the guiding philosophy is different um which is a choice it's a creative choice maybe that'll maybe there'll be new fans that come to it because of that that like it um but like for example the core one is classic ravenloft is classic horror and gothic horror um they, like emphatically like emphatically it's it it there's no way to read the black box set and not come away thinking oh this is definitely not about friday the 13th right like, <laughs> um and so what they do instead in the new ravenloft is they make it multi-genre multi-horror genre um so you, mm -hmm. so every domain is sort of a different genre of horror so you can have a body horror domain you can have a gothic horror domain you can have a cosmic horror domain some people are going to like that some people aren't I don't like that I like having my classic and gothic horror inspired ravenloft with some room for like is an example in the guide to the created they they talk about how golems actually when you think about it are kind of like characters like michael myers and other slasher figures and mm -hmm. that's an interesting insight because it's true when you actually think about what a golem is like right um but it all has to go through that filter of gothic horror to be done in rave do you know what i mean so they mm -hmm. take this thing from a genre that the black box was even hostile to, which is interesting, but it's oh, still, yeah. it's, it's, it's an, 
explicit rejection of like slasher style movies and yes. like a uh, serial type of horror, which I love by the way, but yeah. I'm fine with things that I love not getting along. Yeah. That's the thing. I love slashers too. You know that from doing horror express with me, but the, the, but, it ha but for Ravenloft, it has to go through that filter. And one of the things that I found troubling when I was trying to talk with people about this online, I probably didn't do a great job of it, but I found that people, <laughs> people were saying, and I don't know if the book says this or not. So I don't want to put this on the book. Yeah, but I feel. I that, feel that's like another point. We need to actually read the book and take it at its yeah, own value instead yeah. of responding to its its response. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. So, but what people were saying is they were acting as if by not having multi genre horror in the first place and excluding other types of horror that it was being non inclusive and it was excluding people. And my feeling on that, on that is that's a really strange way to look at genre a genre preference for a game. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, it's it's unsophisticated in a way that kind of points it towards a younger generation. I think you're probably hearing a lot of that from Gen Z and people like that. I don't, well, they're actually, just coming into it. Well, here's the thing. It was actually somebody who was, I believe, my own age who played Ravenloft back in the day and didn't like that it was so narrow. Do you know what I oh, mean? Oh, a psychopath. Yeah. Right, right. Well, there, I don't want to... I, I don't want to say it was a psychopath. But but, but my point <laughs> oh, is... No, but I've been we, we but I encounter, I encountered this line of thinking a lot and I just kind of wanted to talk about it because i feel like you know um there's nothing wrong with the game having a focus and that's one of the things right. that i think makes this black box so good is the focus it's all very you know this is our well, vision you're supposed to have an, a thesis and a focus yeah. like yeah i don't understand the the weird hostility towards this focus because it's yeah. not like there aren't focuses in like all kinds of modern works that get widely praised you know yeah so i don't know it's yeah. it's it's peculiar it's not a criticism i feel is it's, it's not consistently applied to the same person's like tastes yeah so i don't really consider it a valid criticism you yeah know, i think if you're going to have a criticism it should be a criticism you can apply to multiple works and not like just kind of pick and choose and cherry pick oh no this one we don't have to use that critique on you yeah. should you have yeah. to be consistent for a critique to be valid yeah so so what i'll say is the new stuff what i'm seeing in the previews it doesn't quite land with me um, as an old fan. A lot of the principles that they're laying out. Um, one of the, the the design decisions, though, that I disagree with, that I think might actually be a good design decision that I probably should mention, is the decision to make every single location an island of terror. Personally, I like having a core, and I like having islands of terror to work with because you can do both. You can do the isolated mm. thing, and you can have this more cohesive place on the map where characters can move from one domain freely to the next provided the, the borders aren't closed or somebody doesn't want them to escape um, you always have the border closings to allow for the isolation but it creates more more of a variety within a single adventure well, campaign it, that um, larger texture of being able to move between distinct places i think is important to the cohesiveness of a campaign world in general so making everything just a one shot that's a little bit too diffuse well, uh, in my estimation what, what but what i will say about making everything an island of terror is this and this is where i think it's a potentially good design decision ravenloft excelled at monster of the week type adventures i didn't always run monster of the week a lot of times i did but i didn't always um some people ran ravenloft as a sandbox some people ran it 
as monster of the week some people ran it more as an adventure path there's you know or as a like story driven kind of thing like you had oh, yeah. in the 90s i, I really but, i think i agree with you just from looking at the the way this game is being put together because we almost we're almost seeing the frankenstein's monster being created like yeah. from the viscera up here we're seeing the bones and the organs and the veins getting layered on and as we're watching it get constructed you can kind of sort of see the shape of the monster emerging yeah. from it and the shape of this monster is very monster of the week. Yeah. It's yeah. very much here is a mystery. That's the meat of this campaign. But once you solve the mystery, it really is just as a matter of carrying through with whatever dark thing you have to do to uh, to be to remain intrepid but overwhelmed. And then well, you move on to the next mystery. And that's the next meaty thing well, you deal with. And, and I can just say from my own experience, the most successful campaigns were ones that were based around monster hunting. Do you know what I mean? Like that. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that lent themselves to long term weekly play that just kept going and going and going. Do you know what I mean? Well, and it, it makes sense. The, the, the monster hunt is to Ravenloft what the dungeon is to D and D. It really feels that way as we're reading this. Yes, yes. You know, it's, it's the default schema in which you participate in the game. Yeah. Uh, and so by having them all be islands of terror, what they'll be able to do in the new game is make sure that every, it, it creates a very clear template for what the GM needs to do. The players, get taken to you know whatever threat you need you know this session and then that's the that's the the situation they find themselves in and have to face it's a very monster of the week friendly approach the downside to that is it does sort of take away any ability to run the game differently and some people would have run the game as sandbox or as a story driven thing or as an adventure path or as well, or, you know, or switch between have, them yeah some other like, thing yeah like i did weird, I, but I sort of have the opposite opinion of critique as I do of actually method because in method variety is the spice of life. You uh -huh. want to be able to do monster of the week and then suddenly like expand it and decompress it and have this long journey based thing through horrifying hexes and getting involved in these, these deep rich. I mean, cause like the story of Ravenloft with, with like the different characters and how they're doomed and that doom infects the land like a yeah. cancer that's some shit that could really pay off in a long-term investment, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, but the thing is, what, I, what I'm trying to say is I, I, I don't necessarily 100% agree with that design decision, but I totally understand it. And I realize what they're kind of saying has validity, which is Ravenloft was really good at monster hunts and, and, and or not monster hunts, really good at monster of the week. So let's focus on a monster of the week type episodic type structure, which you're going to have if you use Islands of Terror, right? Because mm -hmm. Islands of Terror are these things where they're, they're, I'm assuming they're going to have rules for navigating through the mists in various ways, but generally it's not predictable. And so it gives the GM a lot. I guess a good thing to compare it to would be like Doctor Who, where he kind of yes. just goes from adventure to adventure each week. The TARDIS takes him where he needs to be. That's kind of what you probably well, have. If you combine Sherlock Holmes and the Twilight Zone, you get Doctor Who. So yeah. Well, and there is a doc, there is a Sherlock Holmes character in the setting, so... Uh, Alonic Ray is a Sherlock Holmes type character. Uh, he's not. In, I don't think he's in this book, but he. I, the first time I saw Alonic Ray was actually in a. They had these these uh, cards that they used to make for the different settings, and I used to buy the packets of Ravenloft cards, and they would have characters on them and magic <laughs> items. And Alonic Ray was one of the characters I remember getting from one of those sets. I, is he uh, not in the Who's Doomed? I don't believe so. He might be in one of the later books. I don't. I don't know where he first appeared. But I, I'm just saying where I first saw him was in one of those cards. And then I think he became more part of the setting later on. Um, but uh, 
Uh, some really cool looking characters in here, though. Okay, anyway, so next next time, are we just doing uh, the Lands of the Core and Islands of Terror? Yes, Lands of the Core and Islands of Terror, and then we will right. do Who's Doomed. The who's Doomed. The Who's Doomed oh. is very important, um, but we need to deal with it on its own, I think, uh, which is going to okay. hinder, it is slightly going to hinder our discussion of the domain, so it's up to you if you want to make that all one read, because the it's Who's a, it'll Doomed... It'll be a big read. Uh, if we do it that way, but I, I could I could do that. I could do a big read. I was surprised at how quickly I read these chapters when I actually sat down and committed to reading them. Okay. Um, I will point out that if we read all of that, all the way up through Who's Doomed, it is up to the Bloodlines chapter, which is 14. That is actually the entire amount of what we've read, read so far. In so then why don't we just do, pages. why don't we just do the domains and the, the Islands of Terror and... Okay. And do who's With, doomed on Yeah, time, and, and the one downside to that is when we're talking about a domain lord, you won't have full knowledge of the domain lord in question. Um, I think that'll be okay. Because yeah. that way when we come back to that chapter, it'll be richer as a yeah. result. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So, And I um, feel like who's doomed does deserve its own examination. It's a big chapter. It's rich. And interestingly, there's a bloodlines chapter after that. And like doomed bloodlines and weird curses that follow okay. the blood. Uh, that that looks really nifty. Uh, I, if I remember, the bloodlines actually have some Easter eggs in them, even though we wouldn't have called them Easter eggs at the time. Uh, let me see here. What page is the bloodlines on? Uh, it's one twenty-five. No, one twenty. In the one twenties. Oh, it's one twenty-one. Okay, so you have to yeah. Then techniques of terror. Um, all right, so oh, I'm looking forward to Techniques of Terror. That one's going to be a Timothy lot of fun. Timothy Vonzarovich. Because there are things... Oh, if you go... I believe... I could be wrong, but I think you should take a close look. Is it the... Yeah, I don't know. Um, th there are some mysteries. That, so, like, you'll notice that they have, like, a lot of blank characters in the Bloodlines. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And that I, I believe that there are valid reasons for including those. Do you know what I mean? I think that there are some mysteries to be solved in these bloodlines, if I remember. It's been a while. I know that, like, just to give a, a spoiler, I know that, for example, it's heavily, heavily implied that Gabriella Deere is the illegitimate offspring of Vlad Drakov, if I remember. That's my oh, memory that's of cool. it. Um, I don't know if the bloodlines illuminated that or not, but I do have this memory of going through the bloodlines when I first played this and having... A character like a revelation about a character, um, but I'm not sure. I, I could be misremembering or something. So, um, but it's interesting. It's also interesting that they have bloodlines because ancestral curses and things are a part of gothic horror. Bloodlines are a part of gothic horror. Um, mm -hmm. So it kind of it's just kind of an interesting thing to do, and and it's an interesting way to map out characters. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I, I, I tend to actually do this. I tend to map out things like this when I need to know who's married to who and all that sort of thing. Um, and who's had whose children and all, all sorts of stuff. Like well, that. and especially because, again, we're not just talking about going into a dungeon here. Like, you have, you as a player will get to know these as well as you'll get to know the labyrinthine corridors yeah. of the most twisted dungeon. Because it's important. Figuring out that someone is someone's illegitimate child is huge in things like gothic yeah. horror. So, because if they have... Like, let's just even just going off the top of my head only a member of this bloodline can kill this evil dude yes like that's a figuring out example. who 
I think it is. Isn't that like kind of like the Ur example? Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah, that would be uh, it. So trying to go through this village and figuring out by name and by like whatever, you know, tattered remains of the burned genealogical records you could find and rumor and things like that, who can actually deal the death blow to the main villain that you're dealing with? Pretty significant. Um, there's a lot of stuff like that. I, bloodline curses, if you're a lycanthrope, you know, well, we need to figure out who's the descendant of this guy. That's, oh, God. And so. just, you would think that bloodlines would be important, but they, they actually wind up being really important connectors between and, uh, NPCs. And there is like a paragraph or two talking about bloodlines before you actually even get into the bloodline chart. So, um, so yeah, so I think we should probably end it here. We'll be going for like an hour. Um, <laughs> we have just two little tiny chapters. Uh, but uh, we did record this episode much earlier than the last episode, which is why I'm not as... Uh, you know, it's awesome. Yeah, on the fringes of the conversation. Um, so. Oh yeah, you were you were right in the thick of it this time. This is a yeah. good episode. So so yeah, so we'll be back and we'll talk about the domains and the islands of terror, the domains of the core and the islands of terror, and uh, and until then we will talk to you later.
Thank you.